0: You know, sometimes people who who are user experience, customer experience practitioners, they feel so strongly that it's important to understand the customer and to create a great customer experience that they almost don't want to ask the question, well, why are we doing that? Because it almost seems to them to be like just the right thing to do. But of course, if you're a CFO or somebody who's driving the budget, it's not enough for something to sound like the right thing to do.
1: Here is your host, Sam Gupta.
2: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the WBS Podcast. I'm Sam Gupta, your host and principal consultant at digital transformation consulting firm Elevate IQ. The digital journey is more than simply identifying technologies and implementing them. The most challenging part of any digital initiative, especially if it involves customer interaction, is understanding customer behavior and what drives them to engage with your brand, and make a purchase. Making assumptions or not involving your customer experience and service professionals in your digital strategy initiatives fires back as they are closest to your customers. In today's episode, we have our guest, Howard Tierski, who discusses the process of customer empathy, the importance of user experience research, and the approach of design thinking to improve the outcome of digital initiatives. He also talks about the structured methodology he has developed through his engagements and working with several customers. Finally, he discusses the importance of data and why organizations need to be tracking that as an asset to differentiate and develop a competitive advantage. Let me introduce Howard to you. Howard Tierski is a successful entrepreneur who has been named by IDG as one of the 10 digital transformation influencers to follow today and by enterprise management 360 degree as one of the top 10 digital transformation influencers that will change your world he is the author of the wall street journal best selling book winning digital customers the antidote to irrelevance and is the founder of two companies that enable large brands to win in the digital world from the digital transformation agency and Innovation loafed. With that, let's get to the conversation.
0: Hey, Howard. Welcome hey, Sam. to the show. Hey, thank you. Thanks so much for having me, Sam. Of course. My
2: pleasure. Just to kick things off, do you want to start with your personal story and your current focus,
0: Howard? Sure. Well, my current focus, professionally anyway, is working with companies on digital transformation. The speed of change in the world has just gotten faster and faster. And in order for companies to be successful today, they've really got to figure out how to both deliver a digitally centric customer experience to their customers, and also use digital in ways to improve their operations to enable them to provide that great digital experience to their customer. So most of what I do every day, all day long is get to work with companies on the very interesting challenge of how to understand where they are now, create a vision for a potentially better way of serving the customer in a more digitally enabled way, and then deal with how do we help them get from where they are To where it is that they need to be and there are all kinds of challenges that most companies face trying to make that transformation
2: okay amazing and i love the way you use the word interesting right before the challenge because Mm -hmm. any digital effort is going to be significantly hard so we are going to be touching on your experience in terms of what's been your successes and how you have sort of quantified the the pain and how you have used design thinking in working through these digital challenges and digitizing the the processes. Now, before we do that, we have one of these standard questions that we ask every single guest, hour, And that is going to be your
0: perspective on business growth. Sure, my perspective on business growth. Well, I think that there's two main ways to grow a business. One is to bring in new customers and the other is to sell more to your existing customers. And I think both accomplishing either or both of those things, really starts by figuring out what can you do to do more for those customers. If you're the business that's doing the most for the customer, helping them the most, you're doing the most to solve their problems and their challenges, then you're likely to have more customers attracted to you. And when you can figure out how to solve an even larger array of the problems that your customers have, then those same customers will buy more from you because you have solutions to more of the problems. So to me, the core of figuring out how to grow is to figure out what can you do to serve the customer more. And you mentioned design thinking earlier. One of the key ideas that I'm always looking at is how can we use customer empathy, customer research to really figure those things out? Not the things that we want to do for our customers, but what is it that the customer needs so that we can use that as the basis to figure out where the opportunity is to serve the customer even more thoroughly and effectively.
2: Okay, I love the way you describe doing more for the customers. And obviously, doing more is going to be enabled by some of the digital enablement, especially if you want to keep your costs the same. So that's one area. But obviously, you need to be researching a lot in understanding customer's need. And if you don't understand the customer's need, then doing more will probably fire back. So we are going to be talking about the, the customer empathy and research. So let's talk about how you start on this process especially from my experience when we get into a lot of different digital transformation one of the disconnect that we typically see howard is the need for the customer is always sort of going to be disconnected just because either the customers may be thinking you know what i have done a lot of research but the research may not be as meaningful as it should be from the need assessment perspective and sometimes they don't even spend enough time in researching. They simply have some assumptions on which they are operating. So from your perspective, and in, in your case, I think you have very structured approach that you talk about. So do you want to talk about how do you identify the pain, how you prioritize that? How do you, how do you start on the understanding the customer empathy and, and research?
0: Yeah, sure. Well, I, I think you're right about the fact that many companies are overconfident. Yep. in the level of insight they have into their customers. And you know, to be fair, it's variable, right? I mean, there are some companies yep. that understand their customers well. There are some companies where there are certain people who understand yep. the customers very well, but they may or may not be the people making decisions about what investments will be made in customer experience or what changes will be made. For example, the people who work in your stores or your call centers and spend all day, every day talking to customers very often do understand the customers quite well, but they're not necessarily yep. in the room when the decisions are made around the investments and so i think one opportunity that every company has is to figure out who within the organization really understands the customer and i think in many cases there are sort of um apocryphal stories of what who our customer is and what the customer cares about that yeah. get repeated over and over and sometimes they're not true or they're not completely true or they're not entirely accurate or up to date and so uh, and frankly by the way what covid has done yeah. is dramatically changed the world of all of our customers. And so whatever we might have even correctly known about our customers before COVID is at this point largely out of date anyway. So we all have to reset our belief that we understand our customers unless we've done customer research in the last few months as we enter this phase of moving out of coronavirus at least in many parts of the world depending on where you are. You know, it's a new world, it's a new game and customer needs customers needs have changed. So uh we all need to sort of reset and say you know what we need to go back out and make sure that we're taking the pulse of our customers and i'm happy to talk of course about you know how how to do that but i think that that's that's where it begins is recognizing that yeah we probably don't know the customer as well as we think we do and at the very least it makes sense if you think you know the customer to verify and validate that you really are correct in your assumptions because those are fundamental business assumptions if you believe you understand the customer but you're mistaken That can lead you to all kinds of wasteful investments, huge opportunity costs. So it's one of those things that even if you're right, it's worth spending the money to verify. And it's I've never had a project where we didn't come back from customer research. Usually we come back from customer research and we tell the client some things that they did already know, right? It's not like they don't know anything about the customer, but we are also usually coming back with some important insights that they did not. And it's those important insights that they didn't know, which is the value, and it's the opportunity. Very often to come up with something new that might differentiate your product or service in the marketplace.
2: Okay. Amazing insights there. So let's take some, some scenarios here and examples. And I am always trying to connect the dots here, Howard. So let's say if I'm the executive of the manufacturing organization and I am listening to this podcast, and obviously when you talk about the customer research, understanding customer needs, the more we understand the better. But what problem are we trying to solve here? And what are the symptoms that I should be looking at in my organization to identify whether I understand the customers well enough or not? Is it that my products are not really aligned with the customer's need? Am I struggling with my sales? So why am I starting on the process of understanding the customers? Is it the the digital journey that I need to explore? Is that the reason why I'm trying to understand my customer. So can you describe the context a bit more? Why do I need to understand the customer in the first place? And then what outcome can I expect once I at least start the process?
0: Sure. Well, that's a very, very important question. Uh, and I'm glad you asked it because, you know, sometimes people who who are user experience, customer experience practitioners, yeah. they feel so strongly, so strongly that it's important to understand the customer and to create a great customer experience Yeah. That. They almost don't want to ask the question, "Well, why are we doing that?" Because it almost seems to them to be like just the right thing to do. But of course, if you're a CFO or yeah. a CEO or somebody who's driving the budget, it's not enough for something to sound like the right thing to do. Frankly, businesses are not in business to make customers happy. Businesses are in business generally for really only reason, one reason, which is to take money and turn it into more money. Yeah. And so if you're not doing that, then you're wasting money, at least from the perspective of most businesses and certainly from the perspective of the finance side of the house. And so the question then is, well, why should we bother creating a better customer experience? Why should we bother uh, uh, focusing so much on the customer's needs? And, and here's the reason. Yeah. Because if you look at the drivers of success of a business, that I think any CFO would say, well, of course, what would they be? They would be revenue growth, yeah. they would be net revenue or profitability, and they would be valuation, the value of the company if you wanted to sell it or get an investment or a loan. These are the three most fundamental. Business metrics, yeah. And so, I think any business CFO would agree we want those numbers to improve. That is not us. You don't have to justify <laughs> why you'd yeah. want those things. And so then the question is, well, how do you do that? What are the things you can do in a business to create more, you know, more revenue growth, profitability, and and um, value? And it turns out that there are many things, but the most important ways that you accomplish those goals is by influencing human behavior. Okay. If you can get People to do what you want them to do, then you will be in good shape as a business. And let's focus for the moment on the customer. Now, the customer is not the only people that we care about. For example, you have employees, shareholders, but let's just focus on the customer because usually they are the most important people. If your customers are doing what you want them to do, if they're buying more from you, if they're giving you positive word of mouth, if they're not returning their products, if they're not calling your call center and spending hours on the phone with problems. If your customers do what you want them to do, then that will cover an awful lot of sins and problems in other areas of your business. You're probably running a great business. And if you cannot get your customers to do what you want them to do, then it probably doesn't matter how good your ERP system is or how wonderful your HR department is at recruiting new, new employees. I mean, I mean, you just don't have a business, right? If your customers are not doing what you need them to do. And so driving customer behavior is one of the most important parts of any business. And so then if you ask the question, well, what is it that drives people's behavior? Why do people do what they do? Most psychologists will tell you that human beings engage in certain behavior largely because of their thoughts and their feelings. Yeah. And we can dive into it more, but if you accept that premise, then the question is, okay, so as a business, what I really wanna do is trigger the thoughts and feelings in my customer that will lead them to the behaviors that drive my revenue or my profitability, et cetera. And so then the last step of that puzzle is to say, all right, well, what is it that creates thoughts and feelings in my customer? And the answer is experiences. When you were, you were born, you know, most of the things that you think and feel on a given day are a result of something that happened to you, some opinion that you formed, some belief that you have. It's whatever you are feeling and thinking right now, it came largely from the experiences of your life that preceded it. And so as a business, a lot of what we're doing is creating experiences, whether that's a TV commercial or whether that is something that happens when you walk into a store or whether that's your experience of opening the package or using a product or calling a call center but all of those experiences together have a huge impact on your thoughts and feelings about the brand and about your whatever reason you're going to that brand for help whether it's a plumber or a doctor or a potato chip maker and so this is why it's so important because the chain, the dominoes, if you will, that lead to money start from creating experience for customers that leads them to the thoughts and feelings that leads them to the behaviors that drive your profitability and, and net profit, net, net revenue and your um, ultimately your bet. So that's why that's the connection. And going back to what you said about research, then yeah. a lot of the research that we do and a lot of the research that I would suggest. And in my book, I talk a lot about how to do this type of research is to answer the question of what connects those dominoes, because it's one thing to know that experience creates thoughts and feelings, which create behavior, which create business results. But the the the, the $600,000 question is, which experiences create which feelings and thoughts that will trigger which behaviors to understand the connections between those things? And so when we study customers, for example, we may study how a customer books a, a, a vacation, let's just say. And we're trying to understand, okay, well, what are they thinking and feeling? What are they doing? They're going online. They're researching. What are their, What's on their mind when they're doing that? You know, And what are the past experiences that are causing them to say, should they call a travel agent? Should they go to Expedia or Orbitz? Should they go right to a cruise line website or a, or a Club Med website? Should they call their friends? Should they look on Facebook? Should they Google and look for articles? What, what behaviors they engage in? Are being generated from things in most part that they've experienced in the past. So understanding all those connections helps you understand. Okay. If I'm trying to influence that behavior, I need to understand, well, right now, this is what my customers are doing. And this is what's causing that behavior. And once you understand that, you're in a good position to start to create at least some, some theories, some hypotheses about, hmm, well, if I did this or if I did this or this other thing. Perhaps that would influence the customer. If I sent them an ad that said this, if I sent them an offer or a coupon or something in the mail, or if when they come to my website, I show them this video that helps them understand this one thing that's a key part of what they're thinking about. Just one small example. We worked with a utility company that was looking to get more customers to sign up for electricity plans. Yeah. But we studied customers who were interested in possibly saving money on electricity to understand, well... If I offer you an electricity plan that's cheaper than the one you have now, why wouldn't you take it? Like, what would hold you back? And the answer turns out to be well, there are a few things that might hold you back. One of the things that people worried about, and we only learned this through researching them, was they worried, well, if I switch from the main utility company in my area, you know, whatever it is, you know, Boston Electric, and I go to your utility company that I never heard of, if there's a storm or something causes the power to go out, Is the power to my house going to be restored much later because I'm not with the main utility? Well, that's not how it works, right? That is not ever going to happen because that's not how the industry works. But most people didn't know that. And so they had that concern. And once you understand that, well, then you're in a much better position to say, hey, by the way, don't worry about this. Let me explain this to you. This is how this works. You can still save money with no risk of any slower restoration of your power. But first, you have to understand people are thinking about that. If you don't even know your customers are thinking about it. And by the way, when we learned that and when we went back to our client and we told them that was what their customers were thinking about, they laughed. And I don't mean that as a negative thing on them. They laughed because it was ridiculous because they understood how the electricity industry works and understands that the companies that that deal with fixing the trees and the the power lines, they have nothing to do with who's who's charging you for your electricity. So it never even occurred to them anyone would worry about it because they know their industry so well, they know that this would never happen. And so they didn't mention it on their website. But in fact, once you understand your customers thinking about it, you know, you want to deal with it because you want to change that that thought and that associated feeling.
2: Yeah. So some... Interesting examples there. And I think this is very similar to one of the episodes that we have done related to value proposition, where some of the companies such as your manufacturers or distributors or retailers, they are simply going with the value proposition that they had, let's say, 20 years back, they are simply just pushing back, but the customer needs have changed significantly. And going back to your comment about how the expectations of customers have changed during COVID, I think that's going to have a massive impact overall in terms of the customer expectations. So if you are going to have this disconnect with your customers, obviously that is not good. Uh, But so I am able to relate with the research that you are talking about that, okay, if uh, customer expectations are going to be misaligned and you are trying to offer something else, uh, obviously, that's not going to work. The customers are not going going to buy. They are not going to pay probably extra if you're trying to, let's say, maximize your your sale. But in my case, let's say, if I'm trying to break it down for myself, let's say, if I'm the manufacturer, distributor, or, or a retail shop, and I am trying to think that, obviously, I have several different opportunities that I get pissed by many different parties where, They promise that, you know what, uh, we can do this, we can do that. And this is actually going to increase the customer experience. Your deal size is going to increase. But typically, when I actually work on those things, they typically become far trickier to be able to execute, to be able to implement. So I don't necessarily get the, the tangible benefits. And that's why I was actually interested in knowing if you have a structured methodology in performing these experiments in doing the research so that we can measure the outcome when we are doing the research and we can tangibly track that, okay, no, 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 no. Uh, this is what I tried. My customer expectations were misaligned and I implemented this and I have the tangible ROI here, so maybe I should be doubling down or maybe I, I should be cutting down. So in your experience, do you have any sort of structured way of performing this research and getting the benefits from this process?
0: Yeah, absolutely. So a couple of things, you said a couple of really important things there, Sam. Yeah. I think yeah. one of the models that we like to use is we have a model that we look for called the um, innovation gap model. You've yeah. launched something new and it's not successful. Why? Why is it not successful? Yeah. And, and there's a few different reasons that something can be unsuccessful. And what we like to look at is, okay, well, well what was the vision? You can have the wrong idea. Right. That you can have an idea that if I provide XYZ capabilities, my customers will react in a certain way. And you may provide those capabilities and discover that didn't. Right. So the first gap is potentially between the customer, you have you have your vision and then you have the customer need. And yeah. if you if you execute your vision and the customer isn't interested in it, that's what we call an insight gap. Right. You just you as you say you, you had the wrong idea. Yeah. But there's another possibility which is there's a third leg of that stool. There's the vision, there's the customer reaction, and then there's the execution. So if you have a vision, but what you actually build is not really a vision. You know, when, when, when Samsung came out with the Galaxy Note 7 with a amazing new screen and a long, you know, a, a better processor, customers totally wanted it. They ordered it, they loved it until the battery started for catching on fire, right? That yeah. wasn't the vision.
1: <laughs> the yeah, vision yeah.
0: was not to manufacture a product whose batteries caught on fire. It was not, an, it was not a problem of vision. It was a problem of execution. And so uh, you want to start by recognizing that, you know, you've got these three things. You've got your vision, you've got the customer, and you've got the execution. And there can be gaps in each of those areas. And so solving the problem or even preventing having the problem of execution that's not aligned with the vision is quite different than the problem of having a vision that's not aligned with the customer. And yes, and I, I, we have techniques, and I really go into both of these in great depth in, in my book. In terms of aligning the vision with the customer needs, absolutely. I think we talked already about understanding the customer's points of pain. And then what the process that we uh, advocate is based on design thinking. And design thinking has really two key fundamental concepts. Uh, I mean, there's, there's five steps to design thinking, and I'm not going to try to go into it all in detail if you want me to, but the two most fundamental ideas behind design thinking is number one, customer empathy, which is really another way of saying research, understand the customer before you start coming up with solutions. We've already talked about that. And then of course, you're going to do ideation, which is not a new idea coming up with ideas. And then you're going to prototype and test. And so what we always do, and we talk about the book, and we strongly advocate is once you once you understand the problem, it doesn't necessarily mean you have the right solution. I mean, i might I might understand that you're problem you have a certain problem, but I might come up with a solution that you don't like for one reason or another or doesn't really solve your problem. And so every potential solution should be thought of as only a hypothesis. And then uh, the goal is to find a way, the simplest possible way, to prototype and test that with users. Now, depending on what kind of solution it is, the exact methods may be different. If it's an app, for example, You can use app prototyping software like Envision or other tools to create something that kind of looks and feels like the way you are imagining the app would be before you actually build it. And then have users, people who represent your target customer, uh, go through that app. You may ask them if it's a shopping app, for example, you may say, hey, let's imagine here's a scenario. You're buying a gift for your wife. Use this prototype, go through and show me how you'd use it. And you get to observe how well it meets their needs you know and depending on what kind of thing it is that might not be quite the same you know my prototype in a different way obviously but so that that process and and usually you want to do that a few times because what's typically going to happen is maybe you got some things right and you got some things wrong that's what usually happens to me yeah. rarely do i throw the dart and it lands the first time in the center of the bullseye once in a while once in a while and when it does that's just because i got friggin' lucky right yeah <laughs> because yeah. most yeah. of the time. It lands on the dartboard, but not quite in the center. And that's fine, because if you can make the process of prototyping and testing with users efficient, then it's not a problem to say, we spent two weeks, we build a prototype, we spend three days, we test it with users, we learn what's right, we learn what's wrong, we spend another week, we tweak the prototype, we go back to some more users, and hopefully we're getting closer and closer to the center of the bullseye. And this is a reliable, reproducible method of delivering a winning solution Rather than just thinking, I'm so smart. I'll throw that dart one time and land in the middle of the bullseye. Because honestly, I don't think anyone can really. Do
2: that. Yeah. So this is a great process, obviously. Uh, you know, but let me give you a little bit of a lay of the land from the from the manufacturing perspective. Since our target listeners are going to be primarily the manufacturers, obviously we have a bunch of distributors and and retailers as well. But typically, they are far behind overall in terms of their digital capabilities. So obviously they are not going to be as sophisticated as robust. So if you look at the standard manufacturing shop, and how these manufacturers typically work is they don't necessarily have any sort of digital capabilities at this point of time. The maximum digital capabilities they are going to have is probably going to be internal. It's probably not going to be very customer facing. The majority of the customers that they get at this point of time is probably going to be using word of mouth or from the trade shows. So the entire quoting process that they have is probably going to be manual. So obviously the more uh, we bring them towards digital the more uh, traceability they are going to have but i think one of the points that we need to touch is especially these if these manufacturers are are trying to go digital and obviously you know it's not very easy for them to develop these digital capabilities overnight to be able to visualize. If you, we look at some of the other industries that have done this for a very long time, just because they could not survive in the market without these capabilities, now manufacturers need to be thinking about the, developing these capabilities. And the way you are describing, hey, you know what? You need to put your customers up at the center. You need to do the research. But for them, if they think about the digital capabilities, the maximum that they are thinking is, you know what? I need to put together a website, okay? <laughs> I somehow need to do these codes on on, on digital. So uh, it's, it's great that you are actually describing the whole process, but can you break it down a little bit for manufacturers? And I don't know if you are going to have any sort of stories where you have done this work from this the scratch, where your customers were not as digitally enabled, but they had this journey, let's say, over five years, 10 years. I mean, they are not going to be building these enterprise apps overnight. They are going to have some sort of phases in which they are going to take, let's say, one area to be digital first and then maybe move to the next area so do you have any stories where you have done work where the company or the customer that you were working with was not as digitally enabled and you sort of divided in the faces you pointed out okay this should be your first priority second priority third priority and 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 you work with them do you want to share
0: that story Sure. Well, yes, we work with many companies that you wouldn't necessarily consider to be the most digitally savvy companies. Yeah. Um, Yeah. Whether they're insurance companies or they're manufacturing companies or distributors or government, healthcare, you know, there are many industries in which, you know, interestingly, some industries can be very technologically savvy. For example, you might have a manufacturer that has a very sophisticated robotic process for doing manufacturing that is quite high tech, and yet they may still be taking orders you know, written on three-part forms, you know, and yep. that are filed in baskets and things like that, you know. I think, so yes, certainly uh, we, we've done a great deal of that. And I think that a key part of that is to create what's your long-term vision of where you want to go and then be able to prioritize change over time, understanding what's going to have the biggest impact on your customers and on your your business results. I think that, um, but just take something very simple, like like processing an order and giving a customer status on what is the status of the order that they've placed. Manufacturers who work with distributors or who work with retailers have an easier way of allowing uh, orders to be placed, allow them to quickly understand, if I place an order today, what will my turnaround time be? When will I have it? What will my cost be? What will my shipping be? To be able to then see updates on, you know, when they can expect to receive, what they've ordered for inventory or whatnot. If you start to provide those kind of capabilities to your customer, What you want to understand from your research is, okay, well, how does that impact their choice to select you as a manufacturer? I mean, of course, there's different kind of manufacturers, right? They're manufacturers that primarily manufacture for other – they're basically in the B2B business, right? They're manufacturing for another company that's their product and they're manufacturers that are manufacturing and they're selling their product directly into a retail channel. But let's take, for example, a B2B manufacturer. That's manufacturing plastics, uh, you know, objects made out of plastic. Well, you know, the, the, the customer that's coming to them, there's many ways, there's many points of pain for a consumer product package, a consumer product company that calls up a manufacturer and says, hey, I need you to manufacture this component for me. They need to make sure they get the color correct because it may need to match other parts of their product that are coming from different manufacturers. They need to make sure they understand when they're going to have it. They need to make sure that it fits. How close is it to specifications? All those kinds of things. So the question is, okay, do they have pain and challenges in those ways? Are there things that slow them down? What is their process? What is the process for that customer of yours, in this case, a B2B customer, who's trying to perhaps deal with multiple manufacturers that are each making a component of something which they're going to then assemble together and sell as a product at wherever, at Home Depot or whatever it may be. So once you understand that, you may all of a sudden realize, aha, you know, if I were to provide some kind of... Let's say it's as simple as a a web portal that allows them to log in and see the exact status of their order, or even something that connects. Or you may discover that, you know what, they don't want a web portal. They want uh, an API. They're sitting there, your customers are sitting there with dealing with many manufacturers, and they want you to be able to have data automatically pushed to their systems that show them the status of everything that you're manufacturing for them, that show them the status of your manufacturing capacity. You know, imagine for example, imagine I'm sitting here and I'm I'm the customer, right? I work for uh, a company that makes I don't know ladders, right? And but I manufacture I you know I I sell the ladders to 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 Home Depot and other other retailers. But I have to I have an aluminum part of the ladder that has to be fabricated, and I have a plastic part of the ladder that has to be fabricated. And so let's say I realize I need more feet for my ladder, and so I'm going to reach out to a plastic fabrication manufacturer, and I'm going to say, all right, I and all of a sudden I realize. I need more, more of this part. Now, imagine I've got several different manufacturers that I can go to because I have several lined up to, that can make this part for me. But one of them has a way for me to go onto a website and see their manufacturing capacity. In, in one minute, I can just go right in and see when do they have availability so that when would yep. they be able to manufacture my part? But the others don't have it. I could find out from the others. All I have to do is call up, leave a message for my rep. Hope he's in that day. Maybe he's not. Susan, get back to me the next day. You know, and then he tells me, meanwhile, I've already booked online for the first manufacturer to manufacture this part that I need. He's got the order because he's the one who's exposed his capacity so that I can immediately get. That's an example of how by providing a better customer experience, you potentially not only make your customer happier, but yeah. also get more business. Yeah,
2: interesting perspective there. So one of the things that I am actually going to mention related to, again, this is very specific to manufacturing, just because, Howard, I have similar background as you, you know, I have worked in many different industries, and those industries are slightly different compared to how manufacturing and the industrial segment operates. So if you look at Mm -hmm. the industrial or manufacturing segment, one of the things that you are going to find is the majority of the budget that they are going to have internally across the department. When you talk about R&D versus your engineering versus your marketing, these three are completely disconnected. They are sort of disjointed. They don't really have the centralized planning for budget or the priorities. So one of the challenges that manufacturers typically run into, if it is going to be related to product, obviously they put a lot of energy because uh, based on the product, based based on the manufactured assembly or the product that they are offering to their customers, obviously they spend a lot of energy there. They, they put a lot of money there as well in terms of you know continuously innovating. If they want any, any patents there, then they, they do file that. But then this process does not capture the customer insight. The key customer insight that you are talking about, so they are obviously going to have a lot of different assumptions from their perspective. You know what? I can innovate this product. I can make it better. But you don't really have the fact-based decision making where you have a centralized database from the customer data where you can look into that and figure out, okay, this is what happened in the last five years based on the customer interactions because you don't really have that, uh, some sort of either e-commerce data or digital data. So you are missing that insight completely and your processes are going to be completely disconnected. So based on this scenario, do you see a lot of challenges here? Do you feel that, let's say, if you were the manufacturer in this scenario, would you be afraid in innovating these products without having that customer insight and if you were, what would be the steps that you would take to centralize this to make sure that the innovation is going to be aligned with the customer's expectations?
0: Yeah. Well, I would be very afraid. And first of all, <laughs> I'd be afraid of two things actually, yeah. based on the the siloed approach that you just described. Yeah. And the first is, and if you go back to what I said earlier about why why do products fail, yeah. you know, if I don't have customer insight, then I'm really, you know, I'm throwing darts blindfolded. Yep. I might. Get lucky and hit the bullseye, but more likely not. So absolutely, there's just no reason. It's so easy to get customer feedback in almost all cases. So that's the first thing I would absolutely say. And then secondly, if you have the people doing the product visioning totally siloed from the people doing the manufacturing and production, then you're at risk for implementation uh, execution problems, right? You want to make sure that the people who are conceiving of a product are doing so both based on insight into what the customer wants and is willing to pay for, and into the realities of manufacturing so you can be realistic about what will the product actually cost to bring to market? Because there's some products the customers want up to a certain cost, and beyond which they're going to be like, no, it's not worth it. So you have to be able to determine what's it actually going to cost to make this thing that I've just conceived? Will people want it? How much will they be willing to pay? Can we deliver it reliably? How long will it take to manufacture? All those types of things. So you really need cross-disciplinary involvement both the insight that you get from customer research and also the insight you get from including people in, in from the you know operations and you know sort of manufacturing production side
2: yeah interesting perspective there overall from the cross-functional perspective and obviously even if we can solve the problem related to let's say budget and planning and people then the other challenge that I typically notice and see in the manufacturing environment is going to be the systems that they have at this point of time, are very disconnected overall so let's say if you look at the marketing department i mean marketing is probably going to be doing their own purchases they are going to have their own uh, system and they are going to have their own database so even if they let's say where to start on this customer exploration journey where they are going to be including the customer data in the decision making they are probably going to spend let's say six months just just to reconcile this data just to make it digestible so that you can get some insight from this and 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 to be able to make decisions about the product, you know, what customers want. So this overall silo data from the system perspective is also a huge blocker overall in the manufacturing space. So what would be your recommendation to sort of create some sort of strategy where they can streamline the data mart that they might have at this point of time so that they have centralized system strategy to be able to incorporate that customer feedback in the product development process.
0: Yeah. Well, this is where the CFO potentially can play a very valuable role. You know, there's all kinds of reasons why things get siloed in organizations. And some of them are good and some of them are bad. Certainly, the good side is that tasks need to be divided up so that, you know, you don't have everybody, like just one giant team trying to do everything, right? It makes sense to have specialized teams, teams focused on finance, on legal, on marketing, on human resources, on running a manufacturing facility, on safety, et cetera, et cetera. So you want different teams with different areas of responsibility. But at the same time, the downside of doing that is that if they're not coordinating their efforts, then you potentially wind up with a lot of waste. Uh, The good news is, so so as a CFO, first of all, looking at the bottom line of an organization, I would want to be cutting out waste. If One part of an organization is investing in in an asset, and that asset is needed in another part of the organization, but is not being utilized. And instead, they're either spending money to recreate that asset rather than using it because they have to build another one, or going without it and therefore suboptimizing the business results. As the CFO, I think you're responsible for saying, okay, wait a minute. We're having efficiency in the organization. We need to stop this. And the good news is the CFO has the power of the purse. Because whatever someone wants to do, such as collecting data, it's going to cost money, and the CFO has got their hand on the purse. So you know what you need to do. Just like any kind of governance within an organization, you know, most people because they're siloing for a reason. And I know I said there were good reasons and bad reasons. Sometimes it's just politics. Sometimes it's someone saying, "Well, I'm I run marketing, and I've got my data, and I'm not sharing with you." and That's unfortunate when that happens, but it's also human nature and it happens a lot. Of course, it's not really the guy who runs marketing. It's not his data, it's the company's data, right? He didn't pay for it on his personal credit card, but nevertheless, people get that psychology and mindset. And so the CFO needs to use his authority or her authority to make sure that they know what's being purchased, they know what money is being spent. You know, the other department that needs that data may not know, but the CFO should know where money is going and how it's being spent. And then organizations need to develop you know some kind of an inventory of well, what are the assets we have and data is a key asset and so i think a cfo needs to be saying you know what data data is a data is an asset it should be on the balance sheet and it should be utilized and leveraged in the smartest possible way across the organization which means as a starting point people across the organization need to know what assets we have and then we need to have a governance process in place where people can request to utilize the asset instead of it just sitting unused. So all of that, I think, is the domain of the CFO. And I think that uh, that's what they need to do. They need to make sure they know what exists and they're communicating broadly within the organization where you can find out about what exists. So people get in the habit of not just spending money to recreate something, but first going and checking the closet and saying, you know what, before we order 100 more staplers, we should check the supply closet. We may have some staplers in there. You know, we might not need to order any more. So I don't know if that answers your question, but I think the CFO is the the corner of it cornerstone of all this.
2: Interesting. And I am super fascinated about the comment that you just made about keeping data on the balance sheet. So I know that, you know, when you look from the accounting perspective, obviously, you are going to have your systems, you are going to have if you have any sort of software or any of the assets, they are probably going to sit on the balance sheet. And we all talk about how much data is actually the real currency and the real money, because based on the information, you can do a lot of things. But I don't know if any of the companies or industries have really started quantifying the value of information and tracking that, because in my opinion, I think that could be significantly valuable. So in your experience, have you seen any sort of quantification of the information power that these companies might have? And if you have actually seen the scenarios where these companies are tracking the power of information on the balance sheet?
0: Sure. So first of all, first of all, um, I'm not a CPA. So I can't necessarily speak to what would be considered general accepted accounting principles. And I know you have a global audience, so that may actually differ around the world anyway. I think in some cases, those general accepted accounting principles lag technology. So I can't really tell you for sure whether that is considered acceptable accounting, but I can tell you this. Data, to me, is absolutely an asset. You can buy it, you can sell it, it can grow in value over time, you can, you can create it, you can manufacture it, it can grow in value over time. To me, it has all of the characteristics of an asset. And certainly there are many, many companies who are selling their data or licensing their data in, in many ways. It's obviously an intangible asset, but it seems to me that if your brand can be an asset, then certainly your data should be an asset. And just like you can license your brand to another company to put on their product. You can license your data for all kinds of purposes, whether that's for research or customer insight or marketing or other things. And so, um, yes, I mean, certainly there are many, many examples. You know, for example, companies that are in the, like someone like an OnStar, right? That's in the business of putting technology in your car to uh, enable you to get help if you need it, knows where your car is at all times. They can use that data, aggregate it together and resell it. If someone wants to research where people are driving, which stores they're going to, wireless companies do this as well. Large telecommunications companies like Sprint or Verizon or AT&T, they have data from their cell towers of where people are and where their phones are moving around. And they'll sell you not data about where Howard was today. I mean, they have that data, but they're not going to sell you that because it's too confidential. But if you ask, well, you know, how many people are going to this store? or how many people are driving this way or that way, they have all that kind of data and they can sell that data. So I do think that it's very important for any company to be thinking about data as an asset and how they can monetize it. And and like I say, I think to the degree that data is something that's, for example, been purchased or been paid for, for example, because you hired a market research firm and they went out and did a bunch of surveys for you the result of that is an intangible asset and it should be managed properly and you want to make sure that it's being fully leveraged
2: yeah i think you have definitely given some food for thought there for cfo's and the cpa community as well i really don't think companies are really thinking about tracking the data but you are absolutely right when we can track let's say the domain authority or the internet uh, you know real estate and, <laughs> and some of these companies i mean if you look at these social media companies i mean they don't necessarily have any sort of tangible assets their entire value is going to be tracked in in terms of the data and information and the customer magnet that they they have and because of which they are able to attract these customers. So in my opinion, you are absolutely right. right. Data should be tracked as an asset and if yes. actually companies did that, then it's going to be much easier for the CFOs and CPAs to be able to convince that, you know what, I am really growing this asset and this is going to be far Absolutely. more valuable overall in terms of the investment. Right. So right. if they track that Absolutely. right now, I don't think companies are really tracking that, but that's a very fascinating insight.
0: I mean, if Facebook can't put their data on their balance sheet, then the value of their company is obviously being understated because who could deny that yeah. the value of the data that Facebook has? And by the way, another thing that, that data does like assets like an asset is it depreciates right if i if i don't continuously add facebook doesn't keep adding new data you know the data they have about me now five years from now is going to be worth a lot yeah. less. So just like assets, it, it lose can lose value over time in that sense of depreciation, but it can gain value over time if you keep it fresh and you grow the data set. So yeah, I think a CFO of, of and and some companies aren't even gathering the data that they could. And so they're, they're not, you know, like if you're, I mean, if you're a manufacturing company, you may have all kinds of data about what type of products are being manufactured and consumed and things like that. And, you know, there are companies like NPD and Nielsen, that aggregate that kind of data and they resell it. And that's that's their product is just selling data. And the data that they sell comes from retailers, distributors, I'm not sure if it, any of it comes from manufacturers, but it certainly could that essentially they know a little piece of the puzzle of what is being put into the consumer, you know, kind of distribution chain if you will. How many how many, you know, of this color, how many of that color, how many of this size, how many of that size, how many of this style, how many of that style, and then other people who want to know that, they they pay for those seats and it can be quite expensive.
2: Yeah, you are absolutely right and On your comment about, let's say, even if you have your brand, if you're not continuously refreshing that, that can actually go in value, uh, whether you are talking about your marketing presence, whether you are talking about your brand presence, all of that need to be refreshed. And so is data. So that's a very fascinating insight overall. On that note, Howard, we are about time right now. Do you have any last minute closing thoughts?
0: Well, you know, I think it's a very exciting time. Digital is becoming, you know, more central in people's lives than ever before. And I think that there is nowhere to hide from digital transformation. It is true that manufacturing, it is true that digital transformation has hit different industries at slightly different times. You know, financial services and travel and retail, they were transformed earlier and industries like manufacturing, government, healthcare, they have been education. They have been in the later stages of digital transformation. However, no matter what industry you're in, and for example, if you're in manufacturing, the time is now, right? It may be that you were able to wait longer than if you'd have been a bank, but at this point, the wave has has crashed over every industry, and if you are not delivering a digitally elegant experience for your ecosystem, but especially for your customers, you probably have competitors that are, and it's putting you at a a competitive disadvantage and will increasingly do that. And so I would say any manufacturer needs to be thinking now, if they're not already, about how they can fight that battle because the great thing about being in an industry that's behind right now is that you have the opportunity to differentiate by doing very, very elegant digital experience. In some industries, it's almost too late to differentiate. It's just table stakes, right? It's very difficult to differentiate on your digital capabilities in the online retail industry when you're battling Amazon. Who's gonna? What retailer is going to go out there and be able to be better than Amazon? It's very, very difficult. But in manufacturing, you could be the leader because so many companies are behind. So I think that's a fantastic example. There is no Amazon equivalent in the digital transformation of manufacturing today, at least not that I'm aware of. And so I would say grab that and and demonstrate that you can be the best and don't feel that if you're a smaller manufacturer that you're not you can't compete sometimes it's easier for smaller companies to transform than larger companies so there's a tremendous opportunity for smaller manufacturing companies to be the most digitally elegant experience possible and potentially become much larger as a result of offering a differentiated experience to their customers that larger manufacturers haven't gotten to yet because they're still struggling with figuring out how to get there because they're so large.
2: Yeah, and my personal takeaway from the conversation is going to be typically when we think of the digital capabilities, we manufacturers especially are always thinking about the efficiency, the internal processes. But the main benefit that you have from the digital process is going to be increasing your deal size. It's going to be increasing or enhancing that customer experience. On that note, Howard, I really want to thank you for your time. This has been a very insightful conversation. Oh, thank you for having me. It's been a lot of fun. I cannot thank our guests enough for coming on the show, for sharing their knowledge and journey. I always pick up learnings from our guests and hopefully you learned something new today. If you want to learn more about Howard, head over to winningdigitalcustomers.com. It's dot scom He is offering the first chapter of his book, Winning Digital Customers, The Antidote to Irrelevance for free there. Links and more information will also be available in the show notes. If anything in this podcast resonated with you and your business, you might want to check other related episodes, including the interview with Mark Chaffee from Strategic Growth Consulting, who discusses how macroeconomic trends impact customer behaviors. Also, the interview with Kirk Thompson from Chief Outsiders, who discusses how team alignment may be necessary to align with your customer experience strategy. Also, don't forget to subscribe and spread the word among folks with similar backgrounds. If you have any questions or comments about the show, please review and rate us on your favorite podcasting platform or DM me on any social channels. I'll try my best to respond personally and make sure you get help.